This is episode 10, Prohibition Part 2. Welcome to Why Blank Matters, where we explore how small topics have big impacts. I'm your host, Kendra Clark. And I'm your host, Amber Williams. And this is our 10th episode. We're in the double digits. (laughs) Um, So today we'll be continuing our conversation about prohibition. Um, But first, hey, Amber. (laughs) Yes, Kendra. Did you hear about the bar on the moon? No. It has a great beer list, but no atmosphere. Oh, what? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's really, really hard to find good uh, alcohol-related jokes that are also not inappropriate. We had that same problem (laughs) with the beaver episode. So we're going back to prohibition, and we're starting off today's episode with some terms that were used during this time. Did you know applesauce was an expletive back in the day? An expletive? Like, oh, applesauce. (laughs) Banks closed uh, meant to stop necking, which back in the day was no longer an anatomical term. And it was only a verb during this time because the dating had changed, as we mentioned in episode one. It's also when you started getting the term spooning. Oh, all right. So lots of... uh relationship things going on a bear cat was a lively woman with a fiery streak i want to be a bear cat i want to be a bear cat too (laughs) bimbos were referred to a macho man which is kind of different from how we use it today because usually when you hear bimbo it's like in reference to a woman you also had a tomcat which was a promiscuous man oh those those tomcats were probably doing a lot of necking i feel like that's still used today with like male cats like it's it's a tomcat bushwall was bs i'd say the actual word but we'd get dinged on itunes so but me yeah that's right but me is code for i'd like another cigarette uh to know one's onions meant that somebody knew what they were talking about yeah they knew your beeswax and they also said the bee's knees which i wish we had started this as an intro from episode eight to nine like i wish i had known that bee's knees <sighs> don't take any wooden nickels means don't do anything dumb an egg was a wealthy, extravagant lifestyle, or it was used in reference to a man. A gasper was a cigarette. It was also a derogatory term for homosexuals at the time. <laughs> I feel like that's not the right word to use. Go chase yourself was get out of here. Giggle water was lick, liquor or alcohol. Uh, some of the terms that were used for bootleg or homemade alcohol was coffin varnish or tarantula juice. Oh, I want some tarantula juice. To iron one's shoelaces was to excuse yourself to go to the restroom. Hmm. Jake was commonly used to say, oh, it's fine. Like, don't worry, everything's Jake. <laughs> I don't like that one either. So for those of you who may have missed last week's episode, just a quick recap. Uh, we are talking about prohibition, which started January 17th of 1920. The 18th Amendment was passed in 1919, basically banning alcohol, or at least the sell, transport, or manufacture of it. Uh, you were still allowed to possess it, which led to what many of us know as the Roaring Twenties. Led to speakeasies and uh, a lot of people who were not following the law. 
And also a sexual revolution. Very much so. <laughs> I probably came across as too excited for that. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody might describe that section as a wanton, which is what used to describe young ladies at the time. It's also during this time that we start hearing words like the mob and organized crime. And those are really the things that a lot of people associate with this time. So prior to Prohibition, the what we think of as like the mafia but during that time they were really just street thugs who kind of ran small-time extortion and loan sharking rackets sometimes prostitution rings it could make the small pickpocketer a multi-millionaire yeah so when prohibition happened they realized that they could make a lot of money off of the illegal production and trafficking of alcohol and gangsters really learned to start getting organized really quickly. They bought up closed breweries and hired experienced brewers to make alcohol for them. They paid citizens to operate stills in their homes. They had people who were, they had people who were doing what they called rum running, where they were taking boats and picking up alcohol from the Caribbean and Canada and Europe and bringing it back. And as the money began to come in for these ventures, they had to figure out what to do with all that money. So they would hire accountants. They would hire lawyers to find ways to launder their money. And they started having to think about partnerships because you have multiple gangs pretty much in an area. And there was a lot of battles over territories who covered what they had to figure out ways to work together. Right. And so in New York, the big person you had running things was Charles Lucky Luciano. And then in Chicago, you had Johnny Torrio, who eventually handed his business off to Al Capone, who is probably one of the most infamous characters of Prohibition. So Al Capone was 21 years old after Prohibition was passed. As we mentioned in the last episode, it was the day before his 21st birthday. So what I didn't realize until we started doing the research is just how young he was, because he was... 25 at the peak of his business he was in an arranged marriage with may capone her name obviously changed after they were married and both his wife and his mother went to mass every sunday capone grew up as as a child from immigrants he was one of nine children they grew up very poor and he got into the gang life at a really young age either transporting messages or or anything kind of working I'm assuming for Johnny Torrio, is that correct? Yes. Okay. He was born in Brooklyn and raised in Brooklyn. Uh, He went to Chicago on his own. So he got there like after the economy was like booming because after the the Great Fire of Chicago, that actually boosted the economy for whatever reason. And um, Chicago was the first city with skyscrapers and um, he was all about the big city life. Temperance affected Chicago too. Chicago being more outrageous than the other areas with prostitution, the saloons, that had to be toned down even though um, they were still contributors of it. So yeah, pickpocketing was like at its peak after prohibition started. And if anybody was wandering around by themselves and unarmed, they were an easy target. It was basically considered very foolish to be walking around without a group of people or some sort of weapon to protect yourself. Al Capone found his own niche within this. He started connecting with distributors all across the country and he 
basically built a whole empire of, of people that did everything. And the other thing about Capone is that he did not keep records of anything. That's something we'll come back to when we get back to and how he was arrested. But he he rivaled some of the other gangs in the area and they were just killing each other left and right. And so the law enforcement at the time really didn't get involved because they felt like, well, they're pretty much just killing each other and doing the work for us. So we're not going to get involved in this. Also, he had the the support of the Chicago mayor and he knew if somebody was giving him a problem within the Chicago police department, they would be reassigned elsewhere. And so there wasn't much sense if you were an honest police officer and trying to fight it. Really kind of ran Chicago. Like there's just, there's stories of um, some sort of event that was going on in the town for like a week. And I believe it was the mayor actually went to Capone and said, hey, we have this event. We need to make sure that we don't have any crime or any incidents while these people are here. And apparently that week there was no robberies, no carjackings, no anything and they really attributed it to Capone. Uh, Capone loved the attention that came with his his lifestyle. He was the only mobster during this time to get in front of the media. He would hold press conferences and in a weird way he was kind of celebrated by American citizens. So he was kind of like this horrible person but like people were kind of fascinated with him. So maybe he was like the Kardashians of crime back in the day. There was this incredible fascination with him. Herbert Hoover hated him. He was looking for any way to get him in prison. And so like the majority of his presidency, he was pretty uh, annoyed with Capone. Um, But it was really hard because Capone didn't have any records. Uh, They just recently implemented income taxes. And they had also said that you had to pay on illegal income. and he did not. That's how they eventually arrested him. Al Capone had these like conflicting personas. So on one side, he was a, a mobster, something to be feared, but he was also a family man. And and so that was like these conflicting personas that didn't always make sense. Like he played Santa Claus. What else did he do? He did a lot for the community um, that, that seemed rather harmless. He, but he also had 18 bodyguards. There was an assassination attempt on him at one point, and he had, I think, one of the first up-armored Cadillacs to exist in the domestic USA. <laughs> About the time that he realized prohibition was coming to an end, he worked very hard to diversify, so his empire would be less suspicious. So he got involved in in a lot. But he also, before all this, he, his big recommendation was not to invest in the stock market. Interesting. I didn't know that. So Al Capone caught, caught up in the beer wars. And this was when, this is at the peak of when the Chicago mobs were at each other's throats. In fact, it was so bad. One senator demanded Calvin Coolidge withdraw U.S. Marines from Nicaragua and send them to Chicago because the violence was just getting out of hand. So then Capone was like, hey, you know, we're all trying to do the same thing. There's plenty of money in the beer business. How about we make a truce? And so then, you know, they went for a period of time with no incident. And then there was the St. Valentine's Day massacre where gangsters from the rival gang had all been massacred. So this is kind of when people felt like the mobs were 
graduating from murder to massacre. The weapon of choice during this time was the Tommy gun. It was invented in 1918. It was the weapon of choice for gangsters and policemen. And it was intended, I think, to be used for soldiers, but soldiers didn't really like it because it was so heavy, but it was the perfect weapon of choice for gangsters getting in and out of vehicles. So, and it could fit in a violin case. (laughs) During this time, you also had a lot of people running booze across towns and state lines for all the bootleggers and all of the mafia. And Basically, they would take cars that were souped up to be faster so that they could outrun federal agents. And so it made them a lot faster. And during their downtime, especially down in the South, the bootleggers started racing these vehicles against one another, <laughs> like out in the country. And this eventually evolved into the National Association for Stock Car Racing in 1947, better known as NASCAR. And the first NASCAR race was held in Daytona in February 15th of 1948. And the winner was a guy named Brad Byron, who was a former moonshine runner. So all that running moonshine around turned into something that we still have today. So during this time, you have all these... So this time, you have all these bootleggers. You have all these people running alcohol around. You have the mobsters that are shooting each other up and you have just a willful disregard for the prohibition law and that was a real challenge that were hired for the prohibition unit weren't required to take civil service exams so that allowed politicians to be able to appoint cronies and pretty much anybody they want people who necessarily shouldn't have those jobs (laughs) and there were 1500 agents to begin with And that was to cover all 48 states. Uh, The population at the time was 106.5 million. So you have 1,500 agents for a population of 106 million. Wasn't that like, didn't it equal out to be like 76,000 people per agent? Is that how it worked out? Probably. It was was a lot. Um, And that, of course, eventually grew over time as there came to be more and more funding and more and more people. But it started off very small and just kind of showed that they weren't really de- weren't really ready to put their money where their mouth was. Um, two agents that became very well known during the Prohibition period, um, and who are two of my favorites, honestly, is Isidore Izzy Einstein and Moe Smith. Is- Izzy Einstein was called the man of a thousand disguises, and him and his partner would just come up with these crazy costumes and go into speakeasies in order to catch them selling alcohol they would dress up as women they would dress <laughs> up <laughs> um i think once he dressed up as like a football player getting back from practice so he had like a dirty football uniform <laughs> on um he would dress up as like old people and he would kind of like use different accents whatever he felt was appropriate at the time and he would go in and ask the bartender for some whiskey and when the person came back with the alcohol he'd be like okay, well, sorry to let you know, but you're under arrest. (laughs) And he became so famous that they started hanging up his posters in the speakeasy (laughs) so people would know to look for him. And so he started making it a joke. He would go into a speakeasy and be like, 
oh hey i'm izzy einstein they'd be like oh yeah ha 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 thinking he was joking i and love then when that they would bring him the alcohol he also, would arrest them that's <laughs> such a great name izzy einstein like of course you're gonna be like you're gonna do hilarious things mm-hmm. with a name like that and the news loved the two of them together and just all their capers and they brought a lot of attention to the prohibition unit i feel like this is a real life sitcom and if it's not already i feel like it needs to be one yes it should be (laughs) (laughs) and uh but the prohibition unit also thought that it brought the wrong kind of attention and they actually split up einstein and mo smith so that they could be a little bit more serious in their endeavors but also like prohibition created enormous opportunities for police corruption Uh, the prohibition officers only made 1200 to 1300 dollars a year and that really made it difficult to resist payoffs from cash rich bootleggers right and corruption was so pronounced that it would be very difficult to be an honest law enforcement agent of any agency at this time because you never knew who was bought out by who so if you were honest you faced potential reassignment or who knows they might even backstab you and try to murder you if you were uh, because they were making so much money like the prohibition agents were they were having fur coats and diamonds on all of these lavish lifestyle uh purchases for example, Al Capone would make six million dollars in one week, and that was in like nineteen twenties time. Like, who even knows what that would amount to today? But he's over there making six million dollars a week, and you're making twelve hundred dollars a year, and you're enforcing a law that people don't really want you to enforce. Like, right. you, it's, it's different if you're stopping murderers and robbers and all that, but. All these people want to drink alcohol. There's no victim. There would be times where there would be some sort of crime happening. There would be crimes where there would be some sort of crime happening. And the the law enforcement officers would be focused on alcohol-related crimes when across the street there might be a robbery. And that's when the law enforcement and the government really lost the trust of the people. It's like, where are your priorities And it really brought every institution under scrutiny because it wasn't just the police. It was also judges who were being paid off, legislators. So nobody believed cops. They didn't believe judges. And everything felt corrupted. It's also pitted local law enforcement against federal law enforcement because the feds wanted the local law enforcement to help enforce it. But a lot of the politicians at the local level said if the feds want it they can pay for it the governor of washington even said he wouldn't pay even the price of a single stamp to go towards prohibition and because there wasn't that enforcement this ended up leading to the kkk becoming even stronger um clan membership spiked to between two to five million people between 1920 and 1925 and they built up chapters around the issue of lack of observance of prohibition and the issue of bootlegging and cleaning up communities but they still targeted groups that were already kind of enemies of white protestant nationalism and another thing that the kkk during did during this time was they had their like own propaganda movie called the birth is it the birth of america or the birth of a nation and that played a profound role in recruiting for the KKK. And this all kind of came out about the same time. 
local law enforcement was looking at speakeasies and where they were making alcohol. The KKK would actually raid homes for wine and sources of liquor and terrorizing the communities. And these tended to be the communities of immigrants, of Catholics, and of African Americans. And they were staunch supporters of prohibition as well. Very much so. Um, And it kind of gave them an excuse to be vigilantes. Yeah, there was this whole notion of uh, if you guys aren't going to enforce the law, we saw this even with Carrie Nation, who we mentioned in the first episode, who quoted, if you don't enforce the law, I have no other choice to myself kind of thing. And so you saw a lot of that sort of mentality in this time of just taking crime into their own hands. Um, and it wasn't just the KKK who was being discriminatory in their enforcement of prohibition. Uh, there's a book called... The War on Alcohol, Prohibition, and the Rise of the American State by Lisa McGear. And in the book, she talks about how African Americans faced a greater risk of arrest than their white employers. For example, in Montgomery, Alabama, one grand jury remarked that all the cases that had been brought before them involved only black people, while the testimony indicated that they were working for white men. Uh So African Americans and Minorities were more likely to be arrested for doing the same things that white people were, which... We still see a lot of that today. Unfortunately. (laughs) In that same book, McGear also states that prohibition marked the birth of a quantitatively new and enduring role of the federal state in crime control. The massive flagrant violations of law in response to the war on alcohol engendered a new public panic over crime. So during this time... You really saw an expansion of the federal government and their role in policing. Because prior to the 1920s, they really didn't have a role. So during this time, you had the purview of the FBI, even though they weren't named that until, I believe, 1930. But that's who they were still. Uh, Their role expanded during this time, where they started investigating bank robberies and other crimes. In 1922, you had the federal narcotics control board created in 1924 border patrol was created Um, also that year they began collecting fingerprints and in 1930 you had the creation of uniform crime reports which started collecting statistics on crime before that that didn't really exist now that you mention it it makes sense that they would start investigating bank robberies and stuff during this time because crime was really making making it across state lines for Mm -hmm. the first time and you also because you have this new law and you have people just outright uh, not following it you had a really big increase of arrest and cases going to court the number of cases in federal court in 1916 was only 20,000 where by 1929 it had gone up to 85,000, which is an astronomical difference. And this is where you first start to see plea bargains, right? Yes. So because there were such big caseloads of defendants, you really started seeing plea bargaining. They would have bargain days where they would just line up a big group of people (laughs) and say, if you plead guilty, pay a $1,000 fine, you get to walk out. (laughs) Not, Not all the pleas were that generous, but... Sometimes just to clear out cases, they, that's what they would do. They even, in 1922, 
they had to add 14 new federal judges because there was such <laughs> big caseloads in the courtrooms. Wow. And out of all those extra cases, two-thirds of the criminal cases were prohibition cases. Um, this is also the time when you see the first real spike in prison growth, which was largely due to prohibition and the collateral crimes that existed with that. So in 1916, there were only five federal prisons. Okay. By 1930, you had 11 prisons, and by 1940, you had 24. Whoa. And there's also during this time that they created the Federal Bureau of Prisons to manage and regulate all the different federal penal correctional institutes. So you really just had this huge growth of the criminal justice system. You had more judges, you had more prisons, you had more people who were incarcerated, you had more lawyers, and we've never really gotten back to that pre-prohibition levels, I guess. So during this time, there were a couple issues that went to the Supreme Court. So one was in regards to sovereignty, and then the other was in regards to uh, wiretapping. So in 1922, you had the U.S. versus Lanza, which created dual sovereignty as an exception to the double jeopardy rule, which basically said you could be tried at both a state and federal level for the same crime. Um, but the, one of the biggest cases during this time was in 1927, and it was actually Olmstead versus the U.S. Uh, Roy Olmstead was a Seattle police officer turned bootlegger. He initially started working with bootleggers while he was still a police officer, but he got caught and they fired him. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> but after he was fired... He's like, hey, all these other people who are doing it aren't very smart and they're not very organized, so I can do this better. <laughs> <laughs> he would earn in one week what he would have made in 20 years as a police officer. That's probably still more than I make now. <laughs> probably. Um, he ended up becoming one of the biggest employers in Seattle. And he was considered the good bootlegger. And that was because, one, he didn't carry a gun. He didn't believe in promoting violence to... He didn't want anybody to get killed. Yeah. And he said he said, he said nothing... It, all the money wasn't worth people getting killed over. But then also because the alcohol he sold was pure. And so it wasn't adulterated. And so it wasn't killing anybody on that end either. And there's a lot of parallels during this time to Robin Hood. Because it's basically like these ridiculous laws. They felt like the bootleggers were helping the people. So, And agents began investigating Olmstead, And they installed wiretaps in his basement as well on the streets near his home. And he was convicted with evidence from those wiretaps. And this is the first time that wiretaps had ever been used in a criminal court case. And they felt like since, you know, phone lines were a a public entity that they had every right to be listening in on your phone calls. And so they appealed the case or appealed the conviction to the point it got to the Supreme Court. And the question was, did the use of evidence disclosed in wiretap phone conversations violate the party's Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment? So the Fourth Amendment is um, your right to privacy and the right against illegal search and seizure. And then the Fifth Amendment is your right to not self-incriminate or to incriminate yourself and the supreme court decided that wiretapping was okay and it didn't violate the fourth and fifth amendment though that decision was later overruled in 1967 in the case cats versus u.s but that still 
what 40 years where they're like okay you can do this without any warrants or any anything pretty much so after the 1967 ruling its description of reasonable expectation of privacy citizens have has been enshrined in law and constitutional interpretation and has implications for a range of issues from abortion rights to the freedom of the press and that's according to the bill of rights institute and then the last big Supreme Court case you had during this time was the U.S. versus Sullivan. So Manley Sullivan was a South Carolina bootlegger who was charged with not filing a tax return. Um, he argued that filing a tax return on illegal income would amount to self-incrimination, which is the Fifth <laughs> Amendment. And the Supreme Court ruled that gains from illicit traffic and liquor were still subject to income taxes and that the Fifth Amendment doesn't protect people from not filing income taxes pretty much and this is how they eventually got al capone so al capone was hard because they didn't know how much money he was making everything was done in cash his everything that they owned was in his wife's name so but yeah this is eventually how they got al capone and so the between the violence and now the great depression and also just people were discouraged because alcohol was available everywhere it was clear that this law wasn't working. It was more accessible than before prohibition, and it was more accessible than it is today. <laughs> <laughs> and so repealing prohibition became a lot more appealing because if the breweries reopen, that would be new jobs, but it also be increased revenue for the federal government who was struggling during the Depression. Right. So they needed jobs during this time. They needed... an. A lot of tax revenue came from alcohol. So you started to see production of Bush again. The push for prohibition to end, just like for prohibition to begin, had a lot to do with women. Mm -hmm. Um, There was the Women's Organization for National Reform, which was founded by Pauline Sabin. Yes. So Pauline Sabin was originally... A supporter of prohibition because she was very fearful that her sons would fall to the temptation of alcohol but with time she eventually came to see that prohibition did more damage than good and she was promised a position within Herbert Hoover's administration after after he was reelected and then when he did not give her the position that he promised her because he felt like it was not worth fighting prohibition because a lot of his campaign money came from the anti-saloon league and supporters of prohibition. Uh, He did not give her the position that he he promised her. And so he initiated a study during this time Mm -hmm. to see what the effects were of prohibition. And so Pauline Sabin was not granted the position she was promised. That was when she formed the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform. And um, she felt like the country was divided into three different people. And that was the wets, the dries, and the hypocrites. (laughs) She was extremely offended that the Women's Christian Temperance Union felt like they could speak on behalf of all women. And she was so offended by that. And so she created her own organization. And her organization was much more inclusive, whereas the WCTU primarily consisted of Protestant white women, whereas the WONP, 
R. <laughs> Did they make it an acronym? Oh, thanks. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going with it. Um, they were a little. They were much more inclusive to diversity and whatnot. So, yeah, they really reached out to women of all races, ethnic groups, and religious groups, but partially because they needed those people. Right. Those were the wet population, but also. It just made a more well-rounded group, especially since prior to this, it had always been assumed that women would be block voters and they would all vote together on whatever issue. And by forming this organization and separating from the temperance movement, it showed that women could be independent thinkers. Imagine that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So her organization grew to consist of nearly one and a half million women. Which is quite incredible. And the Wickersham Commission that had upset her so much because had upset her so much uh, had been created by Herbert Hoover to study the effects of prohibition. And it covered every aspect of the criminal justice system. It covered police, crime, prosecutorial procedure, probation, parole, prisons. It included 14 volumes and was published in 1931 and 1932. Its most infamous report was called Lawlessness in Law Enforcement, and it found widespread use of torture to obtain confessions and other types of police brutality had been used during the time of Prohibition. It revealed corruption, bribery, entrapment, coercion of witnesses, fabrication of evidence, and illegal wiretapping. And it really just showed that there was a failure and an adequacy of the federal government and state police to enforce prohibition. By 1930, 1,587 out of 17,000 federal prohibition employees had been fired for various offenses such as perjury, robbery, bribery, embezzlement, and contempt. Um, And one of the other things they really spoke about was calling for the employment of black police officers due to the racial racial prejudice that was really in all steps of enforcement and punishment. Wow. They were really ahead of their time. They also talked about... Yeah, I was just thinking that. That seems very (laughs) forward-thinking. Because they also talked about prisons and how they were not effective. And I think the actual word they used was antiquated. And they said that not only did it not make the community safer, it actually hardened people and made them worse when they came out. That sounds like similar language we still use today. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the Wickersham Commission came to the conclusion that prohibition wasn't working. And they didn't necessarily call for the repeal of it, but they did say that changes needed to be made. Right. But Herbert Hoover was in denial. Once he got the report back, he stated that prohibition needed to remain in effect, but he highlighted all the weaknesses of the Volstead Act instead. He didn't really put forth anything to make changes to that. So there might have been issues with it, but there was no efforts to modify the Volstead Act. And honestly, there was a lot of people who said that prohibition might have lasted had people not been so rigid on making things 100% dry and 100% on everything. Right. Um, there there are critics who say that had they been willing to make changes to the Volstead Act to allow like low percentage beer or things like that, you wouldn't have seen some of the issues that really came about. Interesting. 
Um, And because Hoover didn't do anything, Franklin D. Roosevelt ran against him. And he campaigned on a pro-repeal platform stating that legalizing beer alone would raise federal revenue by several hundred million dollars a year. He won 42 of 48 states during this time. Yeah, he he won by a landslide. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that was in 1933. And nine days after he was elected, the beer bill passed the House and the Senate, basically overturning the Volstead Act and, and creating the... 21st Amendment, which repealed... Is it 21st? Yes, 21st Amendment. The 20- I, was, <laughs> I always remember... So 18 and 21. That's, okay. I just remember that as like adulthood numbers. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the beer, beer bill passed and started the process for the 21st Amendment. And the 21st Amendment was ratified by the last needed state on November 7th, 1933. And it's actually the only amendment that's ever been... Repealed. It was only it's only amendment to repeal a previous amendment, <laughs> um, and so they thought it would take years for this to happen, but it really. Ha- I mean, he took office in April, I think it was nineteen thirty-three. It happened quick. Yeah, and then it was ratified by November. So <laughs> people were desperate to end prohibition. Right, right. <laughs> but even after prohibition ended. It still wasn't necessarily easy to get alcohol. Um, it was harder to get alcohol than it had been in pre-prohibition times. Yep. And part of that is because some states and counties still remain dry. Um, I know where I'm from in Alabama, we were a wet city up until, I believe, like seven years ago, six or seven years ago. Oh, it was that late? Yeah. And um, part of the reason why, though, and this this, this is relevant to prohibition, is every time it would come up for a vote to go wet there would be big billboards everywhere that was like vote dry vote dry and you know who paid for those who the guy that owned the liquor store on the other side of the county line (laughs) 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 because he didn't want uh you know the competition uh, yeah he he didn't want new businesses (laughs) taking his profits and this is relevant to prohibition because because it wasn't just the temperance movement who was pushing states to remain dry it was also the bootleggers because they were making a lot of money Uh, so there's a phrase called uh, bootleggers and baptists and it's when two different sides can join together for a common issue even though their reasonings may be different interesting i'm going to use that from now on um but the other reason it became harder is because when you allow something there are typically restrictions built in. So right. you couldn't drink until you were 18 at the time, right? And then it was 18. I don't I'm think it was sure. 21 until the 70s. I'm not sure. But there were just more restrictions. Like you could only go into the bars at certain times of the day. And so you couldn't get alcohol on Sundays. But there was also limits on the alcohol levels. Um, so did the, did the bars kind of like resegregate after it was legal? I'm sure some of them did. I'm sure not all of them did. Right. But I know with like alcohol limits up until up until seven or eight years ago, Alabama, you couldn't get beer over, I believe, 6% alcohol. And so a lot of the new craft brews that were coming out, you couldn't get in Alabama. So a lot of people on you would drive to Georgia to get all the craft brews and then take them back, <laughs> which, yes, I know is illegal. But, <laughs> but I mean, it just goes to show how like, you know, one... I think we touched on this in the first episode is, 
prohibition was futile. But what was even more silly was when the states or the counties would implement those laws because you can't stop people from transporting alcohol from one county to the next. Well, it also just shows that when you prohibit something, like people are going to find a way to get it. Right. Um, And when it comes to alcohol after prohibition, prohibition did change the way we drink. It was actually successful in decreasing the amount of alcohol that people were drinking. We have not returned to the drinking levels of pre-prohibition even today. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Deaths from cirrhosis of the liver declined by 10 to 20% during prohibition, and alcohol consumption decreased by 30 to 50%, and it kind of stayed at those lower levels until the 70s. Right, and you did see a change in drinking during this time, because you saw saw the invention of, like, mixed drinks. Uh, Vodka was implemented for the first time because it was in mixed drinks. Some of the other lasting impacts that we see today from prohibition is actually from the Anti-Saloon League. So we've already talked about how they were one of the most powerful political advocacy groups. Right. Because they knew that if you controlled the margins, you could win legislative majorities and even super majorities. So say in a district you have 45% of the population are Democrats and 45% are Republicans, the question becomes who controls the middle 10%. And so that's where they really put their focus and by and by focusing on one issue they were able to have enormous effect because they weren't looking at whether you were republican or democrat they were looking okay how do you vote on this one issue and they used their money to contribute to politicians who were in favor of that issue and the reason this is impacted today is because these tactics they used has been modeled by organizations but really most successfully by the national rifle association the nra that's why they give letter grade ratings to politicians on gun issues so they might say that this politician has an a nra rating where politician over here may only have a c and so they kind of shows where they stand on that issue and they only focus on the issue they don't really care if you agree with abortion or drugs or anything else all they care about is where do you stand on guns and that's how the anti-saloon league was and we mentioned in the watergate episode when congress would vote by a thumbs up or a thumb down thumbs down that's also referenced here with the anti-saloon league he would sit somewhere in the seats of congress and and tell the members of congress like thumbs up or thumbs down so that's that is a similarity so the 18th amendment was the only amendment to be repealed But it is also the only amendment to restrict the rights of the American people, whereas all of the other amendments are there to empower and protect citizens of the United States. And I think that's a really important thing to remember is that that is the only amendment that restricts people and it was repealed. There's a lot of laws and it's a question of morality versus legality, which are different things. I may not agree with something, but that doesn't necessarily mean it should be illegal. Right. When you look at whether something should be legal or illegal, is should somebody go to jail for this? Is this something that is a threat to the society? Right. And so looking, so like doing a self-reflection of why you think the way you do and how it affects the laws that maybe you promote or write your legislator or whatever. So one of the issues that I am incredibly passionate about is stopping human trafficking of 
people that don't want to be human trafficked. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't agree with prostitution, but I, you know, the logical side and prohibition shows us that maybe if we legalize it, um, it would actually do less harm. And I think one of the places we see this is the Netherlands, because when you have legal prostitution, there's usually less crime against women, less violent crime towards women. And there's, it's, it's harder to, um, you know, when you make all of it illegal, then, you know, you're, you're going to be trafficking more people. Whereas if it's legal and if there's taxes involved, there's more avenues to do it in a safe legal way. And that way you're not having children and, and victims dragged into human trafficking. Statistically, we can look at those answers and see like morality versus laws. And how, how does that play out? Well, even with drug laws say so when you when prohibition occurred it created the mafia pretty much it right. created organized crime and by prohibiting other drugs it's led to the power of the cartels and just different forms of that organized crime because they're making money off of it they're right. profiting greatly off of it so there's all there's all sorts of parallels right. for sure and in in most recent current events, which I think this happened about a year ago with the passing of the FOSTA-SESTA Act, that basically got rid of Backpage.com, which is horrible, don't get me wrong. But now sex traffickers have to go deeper and darker into the internet, and now it may be harder to track victims of human trafficking, whereas before, you know, I, I didn't agree with it, but for people that chose that, it was one safer than for them, but also for people that it was easier to find victims of it. So, and for those of you who don't know what that is, um, it's the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act and the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. So, if you don't know what FOSTA SESTA is, you can look mm -hmm. it up. And so, I think that's all we have for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. And if you can also find us on Facebook at Why Blank Matters. And Instagram and Twitter at Y underscore underscore matters. See you next week. See ya.